I think prefab is definitely one part of the housing puzzle. It's not the only part, of course. Construction or um, housing has been termed one of those wicked, complex problems. And if it was easy, we would have solved it by now. Kia ora. I'm Troy, here as CEO, and welcome to Stirring the Pot. Thanks for connecting. If you're new, here's what you can expect. We're going to be talking the tough stuff, the things that keep us metalheads up at night. There are many challenges facing our industry and equally many opinions on how we should tackle them. Stirring the Pot provides a facilitated forum to discuss and challenge these viewpoints. So let's get to the nuts and bolts of it. Hi, I'm Stephen, here as General Manager of Structural Systems. Today our interview is with Pamela Bell, who is the founder of Prefab NZ. We're fortunate to have crossed paths with her through our involvement on the Construction Industry Council. Pamela has been on a mission to encourage innovation within New Zealand's built environment and create a hub for prefabricated design and construction. It's something we're keen to explore further, as prefabrication has come up as one of the top interest areas that our members are keen to explore according to our recent innovation survey. So welcome, Pam. And uh, for uh, members not familiar with Prefab NZ, what are the benefits of prefabrication and building off-site? Thanks, Stephen. It's awesome to be sitting here chatting with you today. So Prefab NZ is the non-profit industry association for prefabrication or off-site construction, which is starting to go by a few more names. So I'll just quickly touch on that. So we can also be called off-site manufacturing or OSM, or Modern Methods of Construction, MMC. So as we know, the construction industry loves a three-letter acronym. But look, just to keep things really simple, we just refer to prefab in short. Prefab meaning, of course, anything that's pre-made away from the final construction site. And the reasons we talk about prefabrication or a manufactured approach to construction is because it's a better quality solution. So the international research points primarily to quality as the number one benefit. And this is entirely about controlling the outcomes. So every control freak's um, dream is about, of course, tighter tolerances, better control of the outcome, and better products that then leave the factory and arrive at the construction site. The other benefits, of course, are around saving time. And saving time is one of the fastest ways to save money. So that's when a lot of people's ears prick up. The third benefit is around cost or value. The fourth is around uh, sustainability. Of course, with pre-planning for prefabrication, you can uh, use pre-measured um, sizes of materials. You have much less wastage at site. So it's a fabulous waste minimisation strategy. Other benefits are around design. You can have multiple design iterations because, of course, we're talking about mass customisation, not mass standardisation. That's very last century. Uh, the benefits are health and safety, which is incredibly important when you can make pieces uh, that are installed at height, like roof sections, down at ground grade level. So that way you can avoid having human beings working at very high um, heights off the ground. And the last one I'd mention is productivity. And the construction industry did a report you'd be aware of, 2011 with PwC, that indicated that a 10% improvement in productivity relates to a 1% gain in GDP. And again, that has got a lot of attractiveness at a central government level. So um, you've been instrumental in developing the prefab industry in New Zealand. What first sparked your interest? 
Well, prefabrication is fascinating to me because it's not a singular, uh, simple um, act. It's a very complex, dynamic engagement between essentially three areas. One of those is the technical manufacturing area. One of those is the marketing design or architecture type area, and my personal background is in architecture. And the third area is, of course, the business systems that supports that entity. And again, that's um, an area that I personally have some background in. So I personally arrived at an interest in prefabrication after doing an architecture degree. I did a master's looking at Kiwi prefab, prefabrication in New Zealand, past, present and future. And uh, for me, it was the ultimate combination of business, design and technology. Because if any one of those fall down, then your prefabrication entity falls down. And that might be something we touch on later on. Okay. So, uh, for my experience in the UK, um, volumetric and panel construction has been successfully using multi-storey residential buildings. In the context of the Auckland Unitary Plan uh, that encourages greater urban density, how much multi-storey construction uses this technology has been undertaken in New Zealand, or is it currently limited to single-storey buildings? That's a really good question and very topical. What we are seeing with building consents at the moment is in Auckland City, they are about 50-50 between detached dwellings and attached dwellings. Of course, an attached dwelling is anything from a townhouse to a three or four storey walk up to a higher level uh, building that might be used for hotel or retirement or student accommodation. I think the term that we like to use is Penny Pirrett's term from Auckland Council, which is gentle density. So in New Zealand, I think we are still talking about low-rise, medium density. Every now and then the media picks up on a high-density term, but of course that's a Hong Kong, Singapore, high-urban um, density that is not something New Zealand will ever be uh, reaching into, that we can foresee today anyway. So there's a number of ways to achieve that kind of gentle density. And certainly what you touched on, the panel and pod solution or the hybrid prefabrication solution, that's certainly Pam's personal nirvana for prefabrication in New Zealand. And because we are such a small population, the pods and the panels are the places that we're going to see the prefab industry make great uh, bounds and improvements in the next few years. And that's where, as you pointed out from the UK, we have the most learning to do from the UK, from North America, from parts of Europe, from Japan. So it's a really fascinating area. Thank you. So um, whilst um, prefabricated buildings can be constructed from almost any material, as you've highlighted earlier, for still many HERA members are only aware of some international success in light steel frame, which is basically um, thinner gauge uh, material, and that's promoted by our, um, uh, our uh, sister organisation, NASH, or uh, National Association of Steel Framed Homes in New Zealand. Given that the majority of HERA members use thicker, hot rolled steel, in your experience, have you seen these products used in, for example, modular construction? We absolutely have. Now, it's really good for me to just mention that Prefab NZ is material agnostic, so we are equally interested in innovative construction across steel, timber and concrete. Uh, there has been a lot of changes in uh, some timber added value products, so there has been a lot of interest uh, in that space very recently. And of course, there's an international kind of race to tall timber buildings that we're all aware of. 
In terms of hot rolled steel and structural steel, there are a couple of areas in particular that our members are working in. One of those areas is the one-off custom architect design project, and there's a beautiful example that Strawn Group Architects did for the Boat Sheds development, which has won architecture awards. So that's where you are creating custom portal frames for a one-off solution, whether it's detached or multi-res. I believe that one was a townhouse solution. Then there is, of course, the volumetric solution that you've uh, indicated. And we have a member in Hamilton or Cambridge area called TDM. And they are creating steel volumetric solutions, multi-residential. And we have one of our small collaborative cluster um, events coming up next week, which is Wednesday the 10th of April, where we will be looking specifically at that uh, steel volumetric method that they use. And of course, you can find out anything about people using steel in our membership on our directory. It's a free resource. You just have a look at prefabnz.com directory and you can search by material type. So that's where you can find more about our members, several of which are using light gauge steel, either for the structural framing or for a bathroom pod. People like Concision are making bathroom pods using light gauge steel because of the accuracy, of course. So, um, with the recent with the recent uh, concerns about the conformity of building products imported from overseas, what steps are being put in place by Prefab NZ to ensure that imported prefabricated buildings conform to the strict seismic standards given in New Zealand? That's another very topical question, Stephen. So. Right now, there is a lot of interest in the local fabricated prefabrication industry about what is happening offshore and any solutions that might be imported to New Zealand. Uh, something that's really important to understand is that all prefabricated building parts must be part of a building code compliant solution. So it must comply with seismic uh, engineering design um, needs. So at a fundamental level, there's no difference between traditional and prefabricated parts. And in fact, I think Brands has done some work that all brand new detached housing, for example, has at least 30% of its by-cost products in there are prefabricated. So that's your classic frames and trusses, window and door assemblies, kitchen and bathroom cabinetry. So we are already incorporating a number of elements into our traditional construction. But there's two things I would mention around building code compliance. One is that uh, last year, 2018, at our annual collab, Prefab NZ launched a good offsite guide. And this was our attempt to bring building code compliance specific to prefabrication into one document. So we had input from Auckland Council, Homes Farsight, MB, and a number of experts like the building businesses, uh, Louise Swan and John Gardner. Now, currently, we're in April. In April, May, as um, you'll be aware of through our um, mutual involvement in the Construction Industry Council, MB's BSP, or Building Services Performance Division, has announced a building legislative reform package. So we're expecting this to come out of government in the next few days. And this will give industry six weeks to consult on how prefabricated building products and methods are dealt with at a building consent um, through building legislation. So super exciting, tight time frame, and uh, we'll be reaching out to industry. And it is 
absolutely imperative that HERA members are part of that consultation process. So, um, moving on, um, in my experience from the UK again, uh, prefabricated buildings are often constructed using much tighter tolerances than on-site construction, and you've, you've mentioned that earlier in your other um, answer. As indicated on the Prefab NZ website, whilst this limits defects, are there any issues with compatibility when considering the tolerances normally used in foundations, internal fittings and fixtures, etc.? Yes, and the answer is yes. <laughs> so this is one of those absolute bugbears where traditionally installed components like a precast, oh sorry, like a cast on grade concrete slab meets a very tight tolerance volume or panel product. And how people deal with that currently and how I understand it's dealt with offshore is through on-site you have to do some self-leveling. You have to have some screed that goes underneath your um, uh, your wall panels or you have to have little packers that go underneath your um, volumes. And of course this is where some of these really interesting emerging technologies come into play. So around laser levelling or RFID frequency tags that help with locating um, elements at site. And of course coming from the architecture world I have to say that if you're not using a building information modelling model, a BIM model, one digital model that rules them all, then you're going to have real problems with clashes at site. So the whole idea in a perfect world is that you operate off one model for design that goes through to manufacture. And I understand there are still some advances that are needed in terms of software so that that design software can drive the automation of the manufacturing uh, machines. But certainly that is the space or the, um, again, that nirvana that we're working towards. Okay, so uh, moving on, this this again is probably a, a bit, almost a, a very similar question. So um, for hot weld steel frame buildings, we've actually uh, been working on developing a fabrication and erection standard, which is known as um, ASNZS5131. And it's based on an international risk-based approach, which sets out minimum construction tolerances, together with minimum qualifications of personnel to achieve a particular building importance level, as defined in the building code. Are there any particular minimum standards that are set for the prefabrication industry? And if not, should there be? Those are very good points, Stephen. And the word standard itself needs a little bit of explanation first up, doesn't it? Look, um, my hat's off to Hera and your work to be persistent in that space around standards. It's an expensive and time-consuming process. It's not an option that is viable and available to the prefabrication space at the moment. But there are some guidelines that are being developed that I would like to touch on. So one of those areas is around skills and qualifications, because of course many of our members are setting up essentially cutting-edge technology, cutting technology factories, and in those factories they are bringing on staff or team members who they want to reward with a relevant qualification. Of course, when you're in a factory and you might be working on one of the volumes, like we talked about before, you need a little bit of carpentry, a little bit of, uh, say, painting, plastering, a little bit of plumbing, a little bit of electrical. So you don't need a deep dive in any one of those areas. So BCITO, the Carpentry Construction ITO, has been looking at developing a micro-credentials approach, essentially a stackable or do-it-yourself credit. So we're working with them and Competence, who are the manufacturing ITO, 
And we do want to be working also with skills who look after the electrical and plumbing side of things. And we're fleshing out with industry four different qualifications that relate to the stages in prefabrication from in the factory through to on-site assembly. And then we'll be testing those four qualifications uh, through that kind of straw person approach. So the really exciting part of that, I think, apart from the idea of micro-credentials, which is something that both young people and people in work can access, because we all like to think that we can keep learning as we evolve in our careers. The other really exciting part is that I believe this is one of the first places of collaboration for these ITOs. So for a manufacturing ITO and a construction ITO to come together and each deliver different parts of a qualification, it's a really interesting area. And of course, that comes back to prefabrication being that real mix of manufacturing, design, construction and business. I might um, actually um, sort of pull uh, a, a new question together based on the two responses you gave um, earlier. Again, uh, with um, the standard we've been working on, and again, going back to conform, uh, conformance of materials, etc. One of the um, other important aspects in um, uh, the standard ASNZS 5131 is traceability of uh, products and materials. So um, how is that being done? You mentioned RFID mm -hmm. technology. Is that something that's been looked at uh, by uh, the Prefab NZ at all? Prefab NZ is very um, active in that space between university and industry, and there's a lot of opportunity to connect industry needs with tertiary research power. That's a space we're wanting to grow our involvement in. But I can answer your question more directly from what I've seen happening in Australia. And you may or may not know that there's a sister organisation in Australia called Prefab Oz. They've been around just slightly younger than us. So we've been around nine years and they've been around about six or seven. Um, and we've been very open and collaborating and sharing everything we know and the way we operate with them. But one of their members, uh, Strong Build out of Sydney, was doing some research with a university through a government-funded large-scale operation called Camp H, the Centre of, uh, for Manufactured and Prefabricated Housing out of Melbourne University. And they were doing a piece of work around RFID tags in their panels. And that was primarily because they knew that there'd be other imported panels and they wanted to be able to identify any future um, issues that, or traceability back to their own versus imported imitations. So I think there's a lot of potential in that space and it's highly possible that you'll hear a membership are well ahead of us in that space. But I think it's a really cool place that we could all collaborate on because traceability is going to become a much larger issue in the coming decades, isn't it? Yeah, totally agree with you on that yeah. one. So um, moving on now, uh, from a structure engineering perspective, there are pros and cons between prefabrication and in situ construction. Uh, for example, whilst prefabrication saves costs and improves health and safety through the processes being undertaken in a factory controlled environment, on the other hand, in situ construction does improve structural robustness for the building and gives flexibility and personalization in building architecture. Um, how does Prefab NZ consider these advantages and disadvantages in developing um, the Prefab NZ roadmap? Sure thing. So not being a structural engineer 
by trade, but being an architect, the part of that question that pricked my ears up was the lack of personalisation. So I just wanted to touch on how every design and prefabrication is customised. So a the use of prefabrication technology does not mean a standardised design outcome. So absolutely every project is designed from scratch and if the use of a BIM model is used, especially when you're up at scale into a multi-storey, multi-residential project, then you've got a much better chance of reducing those coordination issues that we talked about earlier on. Look, in terms of structural engineering, I'd just say, look, anything is possible, but the design does have to be frozen up front, and it's very difficult to prefabricate a design once it's been designed. So it's one of those wonderful lessons in early stakeholder engagement and getting your architect, your builder, your client in the room right from the start, your product manufacturer, your key product manufacturers in the room so that you're all on the same page and you're designing to those product limitations, sizes, you're reducing waste from the outset and hopefully you're designing with some fabulous structural and architectural flair for your customised design solution. I think, um, so just to elaborate a bit on this question, um, I think when when robustness is mentioned, I think um, this isn't my question originally, uh, but this was really related to uh, so, some, uh, you know, um, examples such as Ronan Point in the UK where there was a heavily precast, prefabricated building where there was a... Um, um, there was an accidental loading, there was a gas explosion that um, took out a panel and what I think my colleague was meaning about robustness is when you have um, modules and there may be uh, an accident where uh, one of the supports is taken out, how um, is there any particular special uh, rules in terms of tying things together? That's a really good question and Although I may not have a full response, I can point to a couple of areas for more information. One of those is uh, Professor James Murray-Parks from Australia developed a design for prefabrication guide, and that is from an engineering perspective. That is available through our membership and through Engineering NZ's membership, and it is a really great um, example of... Uh, the guidance that has been developed to date. It is an international best case. Um, there is no other standard or guidance like that internationally. I believe in the projects that we've seen to date where a number of absolutely creative engineers, such as Alistair Katanak from Dunning Thornton and Wellington, where they've been involved, is that there's always been an, another type of structure, so not just the volume. And I'm thinking specifically of the University of Auckland student accommodation project called Elam Hall on a very, very tight site right next to the motorway, tucked in behind another a number of university buildings, made of 468 bedroom modules out of matter matter. And that was made essentially like a chest of drawers. So there was a traditional structure um, outside and then the modules were inserted inside. They were stacked three at a time and then an interstory floor was poured. Now the engineer did say that they could have stacked all 14, but they took a different risk perspective on that. In most volumetric stacking multi-story um, projects, there is a structural core that's usually traditionally built or poured or made of precast panels and that forms a key part of the structural system. But that Ronan Point example is, I think it was 1960s or something, it wasn't was, it? Yeah. Yes, that's um, a particularly horrifying 
um, example, isn't it? Yeah. yeah so, so that one was uh, just there was a lack of tying between the uh, the precast panels, and so yeah. So anyway, so moving on. Um, Hero has been encouraging innovation through research and development of solutions for light steel framing in multi-storey modular buildings, which is one of the key areas for you, uh, which you advocated in your thesis. Um, where action is need? What action is needed in order to improve the uptake of prefabrication for design and construction industry in New Zealand? Well, the role of research and development is absolutely critical. Uh, certainly, if I go right back to my thesis about 10 years ago, all the uh, suggestions were grouped into either the marketing communication space or the research and development space. And some of the recent areas that Prefab NZ has been working on that might be of interest to your members in terms of researching and finding out more information for themselves is we've just released at our annual collab this year in March a series of case studies called How to Prefab. These are all freely available on our prefabnz.com website under the resources tab. There's about 25 individual PDFs. They're just two pages, super simple, easy to download. And then there's a booklet of about 12 combined. Look, they are across timber, steel and concrete, but we had a large amount of input from um, both Metals NZ's Nick Collins and of course here is um, Dr Troy Coyle as well. And so we have a number of case studies that are based on steel structural elements. The other area I'd say that is really important in terms of research and development for us is the result uh, the role of design competitions. So a few years ago, 2014, we ran a design competition for the world's first universal open source bathroom and kitchen pod. Um, it's got a much shorter name than that. It's called the Unipod. It's essentially a utility wall with kitchen hanging off one side and bathroom hanging off the other. And anybody can download and build one of these. Of course, it would be great to see a number of other types of iterations and other materials, and it's essentially there to sow a seed, so to think about how do we manufacture and design with bigger chunks. And of course, I'm always thinking, how many times can you really design a bathroom in a kitchen, especially a, an accessible, wheelchair-accessible bathroom? You know, we're fairly limited in terms of dimensions and design there. So the, result, the role of design comps is really important, and the role of show and tell to bring research and development to the public. So Prefab NZ, after the Canterbury earthquakes, put on the Hive Home Innovation Village for two and a half years, showcasing 10 different houses in Canterbury to show that prefabrication is a quality and permanent solution. And that showed a number of uh, designs across timber, concrete, steel, component, panel, pod, and transportable buildings. More recently, we've done a design comp for a secondary house, like a souped up granny flat, and it's called the Snug. And the 12 finalists, with six winners, are developed into a pattern book or a catalogue, and they're available on our website under snughome.nz. And that's an area that I think is really important when you bring R&D to life, because as soon as we have a catalogue, now we can talk with local councils about their district planning roles, some of which are a bit silly, and of course we can start talking to them about prototyping and showcasing these houses. So we're working closely with Wellington City Council to get three of these snug homes up on their waterfront in the next six to 12 months, for example. And the last thing I'd say about the role of research and development is this, again, wonderful collaborative opportunity between tertiary organisations, 
universities and polytechs, and the industry. Of course, we all operate at slightly different time structures, but there is a fabulous interface that's available between industry need and tertiary research grant power. So it's interesting what you said about competitions. Uh, likewise, I've got great support of um, with, of those. And um, I don't know if you're aware, but um, World still actually had an initiative back in um, 2006, 2007 called Living Still. And it uh, basically was an international competition of, uh, uh, with architects all around the world on designing um, steel frame buildings. Obviously, there's a bit of a focus to steel. Great. So moving to the next question, um, again, this is probably a little bit from personal knowledge. Um, in the UK, there were a number of prefabricated building manufacturers that were very successful, but unfortunately ceased business because it was claimed that there was in, uh, insufficient volume of business to enable the factory to be in continuous operation, thereby providing a return on the investment for the plant. Given the size of New Zealand, are there any concerns from Prefab NZ that there will be sufficient volume of construction to enable local businesses to invest in prefabrication? We are reaching a certain type of tipping point in terms of an understanding of prefabrication at the level of the public, the industry, local and central government. So this gives me a lot of hope. We're currently looking at capacity contracts, so large-scale contracts coming out of Kiwi Build later this year. Housing New Zealand have already started these. And HLC, of course, are becoming much more prominent in their role that they have to play for master planning in terms of delivering Kiwi Build and other housing. So there are a number of entities that are starting to, uh, I guess, procure at scale. The message that we consistently put through to members and the industry is, uh, sorry, ministers and the industry, is that our members need three to 500 units a year for three to five years. So that is the scale at which they need the procurement to be at in order to make the relevant investment in both technology and personal people resources. So, um, look, procurement is one of the top three or four things that keep our members awake at night. The other ones are bank finance, building consenting, and the one that they don't mention but we know should be keeping them awake at night is that skills qualifications area because, of course, as Mark Farmer from the UK has said, we're losing more people each year than we are attracting. And you will know also from the Construction Industry Council that we've got a piece of work around boosting the industry attractiveness so that we can all get the numbers of people into the industry that we need. Look, the, um, the business failure area is a high-profile one in terms of the media and we're all aware of the large traditional construction companies that have experienced failures of one kind or another. Typically, in the prefab world, these are usually business failures. They're not technology failures. They're not a prefab typology failure. So they are usually based on cash flow. And what we've seen from research offshore is that really successful long-term prefabrication ventures are part of a vertically integrated uh, company. So they usually have a larger parent. They are often connected to a number of companies that go right through to mortgage and financing. So that's really a vertically integrated model, which is not something that's common in New Zealand, but may develop as these capacity contracts develop with central government. Yeah, I think that's a challenge to have it that vertically integrated. I mean, the companies I know that um, were like that would be um, Tata Still Living Solutions, which were vertically integrated to the, the mill, but, uh, but uh, probably didn't have the direct investment. 
and uh, Rookie in Finland, uh, which were a steel maker, but were very active in the light steel framing industry. So um, how many of these vertically integrated buildings are around because, uh, sorry, vertically integrated businesses are around because I, I'm aware of the um, supply of materials being vertically integrated, but not the actual investment as well. Well, I can speak really just about one example from North America, Clayton Homes, who make uh, trailer homes or manufactured homes, and they are part of a very large uh, group owned by Warren Buffett. And so there are a number of businesses in that large group of companies. Uh, we've also seen it at Home Technology in Toronto and a number of other places where there are development com uh, companies as part of the prefabrication companies. Certainly in Japan, we see offshoots of large-scale manufacture into prefabrication. So Toyota Homes, Panasonic Homes, Sekisui Homes. So coming from automotive, electronics and chemical industries. So they can rely on a really strong backbone in manufacturing techniques. So um, moving on again, uh, there have been a number of major fires in the UK. Sorry, sorry I keep on going on about the UK. Uh, which have led uh, the health and safety executive there to require special measures for prefabricated multi-storey buildings during construction when not all the final fire protection is in place. Are you aware of any similar requirements in New Zealand? Well, the space around fire protection is one that we're watching carefully and we're watching especially the UK and what's coming out in terms of, I think it's eight storeys and above, they're making some changes around the use of structural or cladding materials. So we're just watching and waiting um, that space at the moment. I'm sure Brands is doing some incredible fire testing. They're doing some um, investment in expanding their fire testing facilities at the moment. And I'm sure it's an area that HERA is watching as well. So we're best placed to really um, wait and see what comes out of these offshore investigations. Yeah, I mean, uh, another classic investigation that's going on at the moment with, is with um, Barbara Lane at Arabs. I don't know if you're aware of that one, where um, there's some concerns about cross-laminated timber where um, the charring model that's normally assumed in international stands like Eurocode 5 doesn't work because the, uh, the actual adhesive basically um, uh, disappears under fire condition and drops away, so there's no um, charring actually um, encountered and it just adds to the fire load. Are you aware of anything like that? Or? Uh, we are watching, of course, the added value timber products, CLT being one of them, and what's coming out of the UK. We're just waiting for the legislation and interpretation yeah so um going sort of right back to almost the top so just uh, on a personal basis what got you into prefabrication well prefabrication has been interesting to me right through my architecture degree and I did a master's that looked purely at uh, prefabrication in New Zealand. And I started off just biting off the residential. But of course, prefabrication is a commercial and infrastructure um, technology as well. So for me personally, I was very interested in that crossover between marketing and business. And I think some of that might have come from having a break in my architecture degree where I went snowboarding for seven years. And I took that path less travelled and learned how to be an athlete and deal with sponsors and eventually got to World Cup and Olympic level, which was a fabulous adventure. But when I came back, I found that I was much more focused on business and marketing and how we speak to the clients. And I am quite critical of the construction industry in that I don't think we involve the client voice enough. 
and that's why I'm a particular proponent for showcase housing and I would love to see show home villages at the scale that we have in Germany in New Zealand. So uh, south of the Bombay's North Waikato multi-house housing village where you could go to on light rail and engage over a weekend and see houses side by side. Uh, look, I think that's something that New Zealand could really benefit from. We could really um, upskill our clients and then in turn they will demand the products and the sustainability and innovation features that best serve them rather than industry keeping on churning out the same types of houses, which I think is not particularly useful, especially when we're churning out three and four bedroom homes and we really need one and two bedroom homes, which is another reason to sow a seed through that snug home competition. But um, Prefab NZ itself, the entity, started in 2010 when I did a workshop, Kiwi Prefab workshop, inviting back the people I'd talked to doing my master's thesis. So we had 140 people from Kaitaia to Wanaka all meeting up in um, Wellington at Victoria University. So do you think um, Prefab can solve the housing crisis issues? Look, I think Prefab is definitely one part of the housing puzzle. It's not the only part, of course. Construction or um, housing has been termed one of those wicked, complex problems. And if it was easy, we would have solved it by now. We do have to work on access to land, different types of land ownership, leasing land, um, perhaps unlocking land uh, where possible and in a very careful way. The snug home, of course, sits on existing land, your own land, so sometimes you just need to take land out of the equation completely. The other aspects, of course, are bank finance. And at our collab a couple of weeks ago, we had Westpac announce their pre-built package. So that's a finance package for people to get into pre-built homes. Uh, building consents, hopefully we'll see some movement with this uh, building legislation reform package in the next couple of months. Procurement at scale, like I mentioned, and the skills and quals area, which is being worked on. So those are just some of the areas. There are, of course, a number of other areas. Consistency and clarity of information from legislation and building code through to our numerous building consent authorities is still a bugbear for a number of our members, and I'm sure your members as well. If we could work together to achieve better clarity and consistency around the way some of that information is spread, then I think we would all be able to operate in a much smoother built environment. So for those who are listening who don't know, I'm sad to hear that um, you're leaving Prefab. Um, what next now, Pam? Absolutely. Well, I need to disrupt myself. It's been nine years and Prefab NZ and Prefabrication is at a tipping point in understanding, as I mentioned, from the public right through to central government. So it's a perfect time for me to step off to one side. Look, I really thrive on feeling highly uncomfortable in complex and dynamic situations. So I'm not entirely where I'm going to sure where I'm going to step to next. But if I was to dream a dream goal, it would be around an international innovation consultancy. So I'll throw that one out there. Thank you very much, Pam. Thanks for joining us today. You're very welcome, Stephen. So there you go. Thanks for joining our conversation with Pamela today. It's easy to see that increased pressures on construction and manufacturing processes make prefabrication a clear opportunity for our metals industry, especially given our current environment of housing shortages and private build demand. We hope that this has inspired our members to think about what prefabrication means for their own business strategies and as a potential disruption for steel construction in the future. Because, as innovation expert Clay Christensen said, 
Disruptive innovation can hurt if you aren't the one doing the disrupting. Food for thought till we see you next time. So hit subscribe if you liked what you heard today. Please like, review or share with any metalheads you know. Let's spread the word. If you like what you heard today, then make sure that you check out the show notes where we share a link to my team's recent research in collaboration with Brands and Nash. This piece of work explored the use of sustainable light steel framing multi-storey building options to address Auckland's housing shortage. Its system is made up of prefabricated component units to minimise on-site processes to reduce building costs and provides a viable and versatile design alternative to timber or reinforced concrete builds. What we found is the potential for steel is huge in prefabrication, we just have to explore it.